Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the RA. My name is Sara Sassnelli and I'm the Events and Lectures Assistant here. I'm delighted to introduce our lunchtime event today, which welcomes artist, Royal Academician and keeper of the Royal Academy, Eileen Cooper, surrounded by an exhibition of her drawings spanning almost 40 years of her career. Eileen studied at Goldsmiths College from 1971 to 74. She went on to study painting at the Royal College of Art and soon began to exhibit her work, which encompasses themes of sexuality, motherhood, life and death. Cooper has always taught part-time in numerous institutions, including St. Martin's, Royal College of Art and the Royal Academy Schools. And in 2000, she became a Royal Academician. Ten years later, Eileen was elected Keeper of the Royal Academy and was the first woman in this role since the Academy began in 1768. Joining her today in conversation is art writer Anna McNay, who has written numerous catalogue essays and journal articles in addition to her role as Deputy Editor at State Media, Arts Editor at Diva Magazine and a regular contributor to Studio International and Photomonitor. Together they will be discussing the role of drawing in Eileen's practice and why she considers it to be neither just a preliminary or secondary art form. And following today's talk, please join us for a book signing in the saloon of Eileen Cooper Between the Lines, which has been written by Martin Gayford. Without further ado, welcome Eileen Cooper and Anna McNay. Thank you everybody for being here. As you know, I quite like to throw quotes in as and where possible, so I thought we'd start with a quote today um, from the late 19th century Spanish painter Joaquin Sorolla. And he said, the older I become, the more I realize that drawing is the most important of all the problems of picture making. So I guess there are two points to that. Firstly, that it's a problem or a challenge to be solved, and secondly, that it's the most important. So to what extent would you agree with him? I think he summed it up really well. Drawing for me underpins everything. I think that's what he's saying. And artists like problems, that's what we do. We try to make sense of the world in, a, in my case, in a two-dimensional world of my own on canvas or paper. Thank you. So we've got here the earliest of your works that's in the exhibition, so Climbing the Ladder, 1977. Can you just talk a bit about when you started to draw and also how important a part of your practice it is today? I drew as a child, which I suppose everybody does, just with a pen on little bits of scrap paper. And obviously I showed some aptitude for it and then I was encouraged and I got slightly nicer paper and pencils and coloured pencils. And I think I always drew from imagination until I got to school and then classically what happens is that you have to draw from things in front of you eventually. So I did that and uh, I did that at college. And then when I'd got to Goldsmiths, when I was 18, I sort of had a crisis of confidence and I started to draw from imagination again. And then a whole new world opened up to me and it was the most exciting thing. I mean, everything starts with drawing. So when I was at college, I drew, and I think I began to explore painting, but in a very linear way. I wasn't really confident. You have to learn a lot about painting. You learn about 
you know, just the sheer weight of the material and how to move it around and filling in areas, layering colour, thinking about colour. But with drawing, it's a very pure form. Somehow when you put a line on a piece of paper, it speaks for itself. You don't have to worry about what kind of space it's in. Well, that's what I feel. Because I've become quite an avid printmaker over the years, for me, everything to do with printmaking is about drawing. So if I'm doing a lino cut, that will be, I'll, be draw, I'll make a, a, you know, a rough outline on the piece of lino, and then I'll be drawing with a cutting tool. And even in my new bronzers, which I've started, they feel very linear to me, very much like drawing. So working with wax sheets and cutting out from wax sheets, so hugely important. Well, we're here today because um, of the exhibition that we're sitting amongst now, um, which stemmed from a gift of 10 of your works to the Royal Academy Collections. Um, can you maybe explain how that gift yeah. came about? Why now? The context of it all. Um, it's, it's a very nice story, I think. Um, we're encouraged to give, particularly as printmakers, which I was elected as a printmaker, we're encouraged to give works, and I still have a load of prints that I'm intending to give. I haven't got round to it yet, but they're earmarked. And anyway, I wanted to buy a new plan chest. I've got about six or eight plan chests dotted around my house and studio, and this old one was just creaking under the weight of all the work in it, which meant I had to go through and sort the thing out. And I came across this group of 10 drawings, I remember doing them around about 2000 and being a bit worried about them, so I put them away. Anyway, in the sort of next 15 years, they'd obviously gelled really well, and I thought they were very special and that I'd like them to stay together. So I had the idea that I'd offer them to libraries and collections here, and that's what happened. And the reason I didn't like them, actually, or I was nervous about them, was because I'd strangely decided to draw on Japanese paper, which is, though it's, although it's quite strong, is quite thin. And normally, if I was going to work with drawing, I'd need quite a substantial, rugged paper to work on, because I knew that I wanted to rework, move charcoal around. And these particular works are made of ink, uh, pastel, conte, sometimes gouache. So they're quite heavily worked. So it just seemed like such a weird thing to do, to do it on quite a kind of potentially delicate and beautiful, vulnerable paper. Um, anyway, when I discovered them, Nick Savage came to see them. He loved them. And then incredible good karma, I think, out of a gift. They gave me this great gift back of having a show to celebrate the gift, which is the most amazing thing for me in my first retrospective. And this is it. <laughs> okay, you're well known for doing a lot of works about motherhood. With the birth of your sons, that's what you started working on, even though you've said you didn't actually ever expect it to become a theme. You've also said um, that I think I'm very different from male artists. I feel what I'm saying is very different. Do you feel to a certain extent that a lot of the discussion has been about the content of your work and about your being a woman and being a mother and that perhaps this has detracted um, from an overall assessment. Yeah, I think it has probably detracted. Um, when I was doing those drawings in the 80s, it was quite a radical thing to do for a woman to be doing big, quite confrontational work, I suppose, about motherhood. And I'd, come to, I'd emerged as um, an artist. My career was really flying. And I think maybe... I wasn't ever afraid of feminism and talking about 
uh, women's experience. Um, I'm wondering now if it's something that perhaps I should talk about a bit less mm. as I've got older, and just maybe the experience of an artist. I'm not sure. Do you feel that the content and the form are tied together? Yeah, very much so. And uh, luckily, the content's always changing. So as I've become an older woman, and my children are left behind in a way, um, so subject has changed. Just as before I had children, my subject absolutely was not to do with motherhood in any way. I would have never dreamt it. Um, you've already mentioned your printmaking experience, and I just wondered how much does that and your drawing interact with one another? You've sort of touched upon it, but you've also said in the past that um, line dominates your practice and that to that extent you are actually a graphic artist. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And for somebody who is uh, confident in, in, um, in drawing, then printmaking offers the most amazing, wonderful world to ex extend yourself. Um, so, the, 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 but then it feeds back in unpredictable ways. So the most obvious thing that I learned from printmaking uh, is to think in layers, which I never used to do in my paintings. You'd just be rolling through in a painting, trying to improve it the whole time. But I think working in the layers of printmaking, which uh, means you have to stand back, and uh, you know there's a, a there's a kind of some time for the wizardry of the imagery, and then mixing the colours. But then there's a lot of process, and the mechanics of making the print. It's quite a good way to learn that actually you can spend a lot longer mulling over a painting, and a lot longer. To, to allow it to look really bad, <laughs> even, even a year before you rework it in the next layer to hopefully improve it. Do you do that? I mean, do you leave some of your works and then go back to them? Yeah, I do. I, um, not so much drawings, actually. Drawings tend to just happen and be finished, a group of drawings. But with paintings, it's much more backwards and forwards, starting new work. Um, I think I find painting quite difficult. More difficult than drawing? More difficult than drawing. And it's to do with this thing that in a drawing, you see that the space just seems to take care of itself. Whereas in a painting, you've got all these questions. And if you're working from imagination like me, what kind of world am I putting these figures in? Are they inside? Are they outside? Um, do I need anything in the background? And, of course, that changes and you go backwards and forwards, re-examining that over, over the years. You just mentioned the space that they inhabit. Um, maybe you can say a bit about that because your frames early on definitely were very, very much filled by the figures in them. They kind of yeah. almost were bursting out of the frames and perhaps less so now. They seem almost to inhabit the space more comfortably. Um, so I suppose... If we looked at Giant, which is there, she is absolutely filling that space. And in fact, it's two pieces of paper joined together. Whereas, so she's from the 80s. And um, this one, Fawn, I think it's called, is very recent. And I think that just sums up exactly what you've mm. said. Um, so I look uh, back through this lot of work and I think I lost something. And of course, I've gained a lot. I've gained clarity and confidence. 
but the degree of difficulty um, of exploring that sort of subject matter and making it literally physically fit into the rectangle is, um, you know, is something I suppose that I just got more confident at doing. And in a way, um, I think degree of difficulty is a great thing. And as you become more confident and more skilled, and uh, you know, you've explored different processes and materials, you need to find ways of subverting yourself to keep it really lively, mm. if that makes sense. Um, again, talking about sort of trying things out and, and filling spaces and making marks, one critic actually said that your printmaking experience had taught you to be very exact with your drawing and precise and that there were therefore no pentimenti or underdrawing mm. marks visible. But, I mean, if you look at... Again, we saw this one earlier, but climbing the ladder, that seems not to be the case at all. And a lot of your works in this room as well seem to have sort of tentative mark making visible. I think particularly in the early works, but possibly there's some truth in that, that post my printmaking experience, there's, um, you know, when you start drawing, there's not always as much change. Well, often there's not as much change as there used to be. And I think there's a little, well, I know there's a little video out there of, of a drawing coming to life. And the changes are not that dramatic, not in the way they used to be. So I suppose that's a sort of to do with familiarity with the process and the materials, which is both good and bad. Can you expand on that? So you never want to be slick. You know, it's the worst thing you can say to an artist, that it's slick. I always want to keep things spontaneous. Um, so I'm quite prepared to lose my, the work I've done um, on, a, on any particular piece and destroy it in order to have it lively and interesting. I, I would hate to fall into that slick or something being a bit mediocre, never quite having that buzz. You were saying the other day about with drawings, you've got that freedom. You can always turn the paper upside down or yeah. over and start again. Yeah, and that's right. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. It's so flexible and you can always tear it up. There's, you know, the only investment in it is time. And I think that's the fear of the canvas. And my way of coping with the canvas is I'll start a lot at the same time. So I'll start. And it, it stops you trying to paint the masterpiece because you're working on a group of work over a long period of time. I think if you just, for me, if I just work on one piece, it's almost doomed to failure. But no, drawing is amazingly flexible. Just as a point of clarification with drawing, um, the, the working title for this show kept fluctuating between drawings and works on paper, so what do you see the distinction there to be? Um, I suppose there's something so wonderfully basic about drawing. It's... Um, anybody can do it. You know, you do it when you're on the phone, you're doodling. Um, something about works on paper is probably more of a marketing ploy by <laughs> uh, gallerists. The weight and the importance of works on paper seems slightly superior to drawing. And, of course, it can include a lot of things. So, I mean, we've got here a few of your drawings in, in pencil, which I suppose is what typically... Yeah, would think of as I, I think it was years, years and years and years before I had the confidence to draw in pencil. I, I learned to draw in pencil from the model when I was 17, 18, and always a wonderful 2B pencil. But 
somehow when I started to work from imagination, the fl fluid thing that you get with charcoal was what allowed me to make, the, to find this imagery. And uh, I'd always had this kind of fear of pencil that it, you know, you can see all the problems of the drawing so clearly in a pencil. But I suppose, again, maybe the printmaking over many years had uh, made me confident. And, um, you know, you're always looking to learn and develop and improve and set yourself difficult tasks. So for me, it was very difficult to begin to draw with pencil. But actually, I think they're, I think they're nice. I like them. Um, so that was, in, I mean, they're in they're 2011. So if you think that I've been working since 1979 and I finally got confident with pencil, that shows something. I don't quite know what. <laughs> I mean, just as a little excursus, I know we're focusing on drawing here, but you do work in a lot of other materials as well, media. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not... I approach um, making these works very much um, in a very sort of physical way. I like the engagement with materials and process. As I said, I've started to work in wax to make some new bronzers. Um, so I don't approach things from an intellectual point of view at all, um, which is quite against the current trend, certainly in art schools, where students are very much, they have to have a huge intellectual input and they have to absorb that. I like to tell my students that I predate art theory <laughs> and don't have to, I never had to learn it. <laughs> and your bronzes, you mentioned with the wax, I mean, you've said before, it's kind of like you draw into the wax. Yeah. I think I use collage quite a lot and the bronzes are a little bit like collages. So out of flat wax sheets, I cut out various forms, a tree, a female figure, a fox, and then assemble them on a, on a flat base. Um, I had a wonderful um, supporter and helper, Kathy Pilkington RA, was teaching me. And uh, of course, as somebody who's completely involved in a two-dimensional world, the idea of making things stand up in space was just such a problem. But she showed me a few shortcuts. So mine are like, they're more like three-dimensional drawings or collages, I think, rather than proper bronzes, proper sculptures. But it is, it's very much the engagement with stuff that I really like. Mm -hmm. And I always want to set myself the challenge of working in new materials. I've worked with a jeweler to make um, things in silver, silver brooches. I've worked with um, uh, ceramics um, and all different forms of printmaking. You did a tufted rug as well. I did a tufted rug once. <laughs> so um, I always mean to go back to things. It's quite hard um, balancing everything and then picking up on the ones that got away. So textiles and rugs are definitely the ones that got away. <laughs> and the bronzes, there are two of them in the um, summer exhibition. So again, something that people can see whilst they're here. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned fawn briefly before, but... Can you, you use animals an awful lot in your work? This one was, I'd done a little lino cut called Real Spring. And um, it started actually, as a lot of my works do, from looking at something else. In this case, it was a Christmas card with a man in a tree. Um, strange subject for a Christmas card, but that's what it was. 
uh, or a boy in a tree. And I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. And so I was working on these series of lino cuts called Wildwood. And uh, the boy in the tree developed to being in a tree watching somebody reading a book underneath. And um, anyway, I thought that was such an image that still had potential. So I started to make this very large drawing. I made three drawings that size. And, um, and it was working and I'm moving it around a little bit. And then right at the end of the drawing, it felt strangely empty. And I can only describe it that the, I was looking for something to put in the space where you can see that the little deer is. And it was as if the deer wandered into my studio and said, oh, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, so that illustrates for me the studio being a real place of imagination. So I probably, the reason I, I, I fixed on a deer was because I've used them occasionally before. And I really love a particular painting by Frida Kahlo where she paints a self-portrait of herself as a little deer. So all those things conspired. And of course, it fills up the painting, the <laughs> drawing quite nicely. Um, there, but there are a lot of animals. I mean, you've got tigers yeah. a lot, not, yeah. not in the drawings here. Um, but dogs, tigers. Tortoises. Tortoises, yeah. They were very particular, actually, to when my mother died. Um, it was a wonderful summer, hot summer, and she was very ill. And I was going up north a lot. But my uncle, her brother, had unpacked his tortoises from their hibernation. And uh, they just, so, so it was a very direct, when I was making this work, again, I didn't in, intend to use that experience. Those are the two right down there at the end. Um, the, um, the tortoise just seemed to find a place, and in fact, I've never ever used it again. <laughs> it seemed to be right for that subject. Um, the tiger has come and gone over the years, and, and I want to really limit myself to use it. I don't want it to become just a signature for me. Um, so when my children were little, the tiger was a very strong, I suppose, a symbol of female, and the, you know, the, the female... I don't know, the female-ness of it. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes the tiger was very much... I suppose it's about passion, the tiger, really. Okay. Luckily, I don't have to interpret my work. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever feel that critics over-interpret your work? Um, no, I'm never... That never bothers me at all. I'm always happy for people to spend time looking and thinking about it, even if... And, and I'm always intrigued when people come up with things that I hadn't thought of. So, for example, saying that the tortoise was something to do with, you know, the transition and the death, but actually it was just based on a real tortoise. Yeah, and yet, of course, it was both of those mm. things because it was about that sort of, you know, those last weeks of my mum's life and... The tortoise seemed to s sort of contribute to that. Subconsciously, the yeah. connections are made. Yeah. Fish. I, I used to use fish in the past. Good. I haven't used fish for a long time. You've used a boat. <laughs> Boats. Um, I suppose, you know, on one level, perhaps my imagery is quite straightforward. Uh, life's journey is a big thing for me. And um, family dynamics and that sort of terrifying thing about being in a small boat on a choppy sea my boats are always 
terribly badly drawn, really. I never, they're drawn from imagination, not from the reference of a real boat, so they're, it's, it's there just to contain, contain that family. And what about the balancing act? I mean, um, this is interesting because she came from, uh, I was reading an obituary in the uh, Guardian of um, Celia, Cecilia College, who was um, a diver, a, 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 an Olympic diver, and, um, and she ended up with a Hollywood career. So she must have died about 2008, I would think because that's the date of that piece of work. And, and it was the photograph of her in the obituary. She was standing on one leg like that, balancing wonderfully in, in a bathing suit. Mm -hmm. So I do take from, you know, Christmas cards, obituaries. I think artists take mm -hmm. from whatever they can. And I've used her several times. Can you say a bit, I mean, drawing for you is about a lot more than just putting the marks down and the lines as well, although it does have that graphic element, but the colour is really important to you and the interaction between the outline colours and the body colours. So I don't always know, in fact, I never really know that I'm going to use colour. Um, this was part of a group of about four or five drawings that started off, I think probably rather than in black, I was using brown to draw with, brown conte, and a bit of charcoal. And then they just had to have colour. Um, and this is probably the most coloured one of them. A lot of your earlier works are pretty, you know, primal, primitive colours. So, for example, the, the, the ten works in The Gift. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think they're quite unusual, actually, in that. Um, you'd get the feeling from this show that I'd done a lot of coloured drawings. But... <laughs> I know, probably not, and so that's why I, th I think, again, the gift was so special. Um, and yet, I've got a drawing there with, you know, a red face, so that must have been something I felt I needed to really express myself. I don't want, I don't think I don't want to over-analyse things. Mm -hmm. What about scale, then? Because we've got Treehouse 2 there, which is the yeah. largest one in the show and there's actually a treehouse one that predates it slightly but it was too big to be put in the I show. I know that's just <laughs> completely mad isn't it? So I never saw that drawing upright till it was framed. I could prop one half of it up in my studio and then and look at that and then the other half I would prop up and um, then all four bits were laid on the studio floor I was a lot younger in those days, so I could easily get down and work on my knees in the studio and just move them around and work across them. There's something amazing about working on a scale much, much bigger than yourself. I've done it often, and I don't really feel the need to do it terribly much now. There's something really difficult about not being able to move a piece of your work easily. You know, you'd need a team of art handlers to come in and in the studio you can't get them. So I think probably this feels quite big for me to move on my own when I'm in the studio. Is that all one piece of paper? Yeah, that's yeah. one piece of paper. I could probably start on two of those maybe to make one twice the size. Maybe that's something, task, a task I should set myself. You've talked already a little bit about, you know, to what extent you pre-plan your works and to what extent... Um, you kind of go with the flow as they develop. And you've, you've said that, you know, sometimes things 
occur to you and happen to you or happen to the drawing that then influence you and lead you in a certain path that you wouldn't have imagined. Mm. Can you talk a bit more about that, perhaps with relation to um, the video that's outside here? So this drawing, dancer, of course, is such a great metaphor, isn't it, for so many things. And I'm very keen in all my work to have a sort of twist a figure around to fit into the rectangle. Dancers, of course, there's a reason for them being in a kind of bizarre position. Um, so this was part of a series of single female figures. Um, and I was looking at a book of dance photographs from the 60s. And um, she, again, I think the male figure came because she seemed, it seemed like an incredible, not, um, not, not well balanced that it needed something in there, and then the male figure became, came because of that. Do you think male figures have come into your work more over time, or have they always been there? No, I think definitely more over time. Um, strangely, I had two male children, which there was no ignoring that, and, uh, and then I became very aware of men and bo boys and men. And, um, and young women seemed to be very strange to me mm. because I was so locked into the things you do with boys and their behavior. Um, but now it's very nice because I'm in touch again with young women through, particularly through my students and through the, you know, the friends that the boys bring back. Although, of course, now they're young men, they don't come and see me at all. <laughs> um, yeah, but the male figure has an important role. And I hope that I um, do them justice, really. Would you say they're secondary to the female in your work? Are they yes, I suppose that is true, on the whole. <laughs> or, if not secondary, sometimes equal. I have done some paintings which have been of a male figure mm. or a boy. And there are some drawings in here of the boy, boys. So I think I'm not, it's not something I'm consciously, yeah. So maybe that'll be something again for the future. I could think about doing that, doing them really, doing them justice, mm -hmm. giving them a good center stage. <laughs> the female figure, I mean, a lot of critics assume that the female figure is you, is Eileen. Is that true? Uh, if I thought that, I just would not be able to make any work so I have to think, and I have a stock answer for that. And people ask me and I say, no, it's personal, but it's also universal. So as much as it's me, it's you. Mm -hmm. And that's my get out clause, really. <laughs> um, can we talk about clothes as well, whilst we've got mm. him up there? I mean, yeah. you kind of became known for your, what people were calling your new drawings and they said that you were Britain's new young nudist superstar but you you've always said that you don't see them in that way at all no I it, there's another weird thing about when my mother died I did my first ever clothed figure and um, it was a strange period because the color which had been very primal so I always felt in my early work particularly and even in these drawings that the materials they were made out of, so charcoal or uh, paint, clothed the figures in some way, that they were naked but not nude. 
um, not nude like a life model and um, and confident in their own bodies but I did find myself putting when the color drained from my work um, when my mother died it looked a bit like they were actually finally nude mm. and um, rather than being made out of cadmium reds or blue or you know deep colors they were more flesh colored and uh, then they seemed to need some clothes so now are they always clothed um on and off <laughs> on and off <laughs> the clothes are often sketched on top as a just a hint of covering i think i just got a lot more modest as i've got older but some of the clothes, as you say, they're sort of sketched on top. They're almost transparent. Yeah. I'm not really that interested in the clothes. And I always felt, as a young woman artist, that if I put clothes on, then the clothes would be from the 1970s. And what would that look like <laughs> now? Um, so I'd want my clothes to be very, like the word, timeless or universal. Um, quite unlike Paul Larego, who's pictures I love but she's so obsessed by costume and that's it's you know that's not something that interests me much so the key point that you keep reiterating throughout this is that you you draw from your imagination so you don't use models at all anymore is that true um, well I did have a stint of going to some life drawing classes a few years ago and I've got a plan chest full of life drawings <laughs> um, and then I've done the odd portrait which I've really enjoyed doing so again, that's something I wouldn't rule out now. I think I was very confident in what life drawing gave me, which allowed me to, you know, draw a falling figure or a crouching figure mm. or a flying figure, which you would have difficulty getting the model to pose for that. Also, I used to find the models incredibly irritating. <laughs> um, I'm sorry to say that, but they would need breaks and they would get cold and they would want to chat. <laughs> so I just had no choice. I had to dispense with the models. <laughs> so do you feel that gave you a, a freedom in a way? Yeah. Um, but as I said, I did recently draw a young girl um, for a um, charity called uh, Miracles. 50 artists did portraits of children in Tower Hamlets. And, um, and that did make me think that it might be something I'd like to do again. How important do you think that life drawing is as a skill for students, perhaps in the schools now? Um, oh, that is such a difficult one, because, of course, a new generation of artists have such different skills. Um, they come with attention to detail from all the experiences they've had that I don't have. So a lot of them using photography or different sorts of software programs, even if they're uh, paint, painters or sculptors, a big part of what they will do will have started at some point in the computer. Mm. Um, on the whole, our students, we select them, they're incredibly gifted. Most of them will have done fairly conventional drawing to start with, but like I did, left it to one side. But you think it's important to learn it first before? I think it is for some people. Um, so, so Chantelle Joffe works from the model. She's got this amazing painting in the summer show. Um, um, Lynette Yadam Boaki, um, who was up for the Turner Prize, is an ex-school student, and she 
also works from has worked from the model, but I think, like me, she she works from imagination. I, I wouldn't presume to lay down the law for anybody because there are so many ways now to be an artist. It used to be a much more conventional route. I think, should we turn to the audience for questions? The word process seems to be very relevant for you. When you move from drawings to uh, prints and stuff, was the process of deciding to move into roles, was that something that helped became gradual, or did it dawn on you quite quickly that you wanted to work in roles and It was really an opportunity and a whim. Oh, God, that would be good. That was my feeling. Could I do that? How would you do that? And then the right person to hold my hand and teach me to do it. So I think it's more that if new opportunities are there, I'll greedily grab them as much as I can. And I'm also not afraid to resource them. So I'll give them time and money. And if they don't go anywhere, I'm not worried. So that's, and it, because it keeps the whole thing exciting and alive for me. Um, I'd just like to, it's probably, you can't answer this, so if you can't, it doesn't matter. But I wanted to unpack this idea of drawing from the imagination. Because you, I read in the book that you used to write poems and stories when you were much younger. And it seems to me, what is the connection between writing from the imagination and drawing? And a writer sees pictures in their mind and then finds the verbs and nouns to create the story. So when you're drawing, do you see a picture in your mind or is it a mark talking back to you? It's um, a really interesting question and every artist will have a different answer, I'm sure. To some extent, yes, you have a picture in your mind, but through the activity of drawing the marks talking back to you, which you brilliantly described, big changes happen, mm -hmm. and they're the best drawings. If it stays, which must be the same for a writer, mm -hmm. um, so if it stays as you'd imagined, it's all a little bit, you know, half-hearted, I think. Does that answer it? Yes, and I was thinking about the line, the outline as the syntax, or maybe some as the verb, and the poetry of the drawing has quite a lot to do with poetry in words. No, it's great. I'd barely written anything, you know, from being at school onwards because I was focusing on drawing. I think I didn't feel the need to write. And then I became very afraid of words because I felt they betray too much about me and that actually imagery was more fluid and hard to pin down. But for my book, I had to write something. Um, you said that when you went to Goldsmiths, you had a crisis of confidence and that that was when you started drawing from the imagination. Can you sort of explain the link between the crisis of confidence and drawing from the imagination? So if you can imagine 1971, I was just 18 and I'd done a one-year foundation at Ashton Underline College of Further Education and got into Goldsmiths College, came down to London... I think I'd only ever been to London once before. And um, arrived at Goldsmiths. And suddenly I realised the rest of the people on the course were performance artists, 
um, they were doing early examples of what you might call installation now, the forerunner of installation. There were a big core of male abstract painters. And uh, God, where did I fit in? So I lost my confidence, which is always a very good thing to go through a bit of pain. And, um, and eventually, I had to do something, and I just started to gradually draw again. Yeah, no pain, no gain. <laughs> so the question is, what does art mean to, to me? You, yeah. um, I think it is my way of understanding the world, and it keeps me sane. And, um, and I have to work. What it means to me when I look at other art is a bit different because um, it's like reading a book. I couldn't live without reading. I couldn't live without going to look at other people's artworks. It fulfills a need in me, stimulates my imagination. Most of all, it's a, you know, as a practitioner, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to do to spend your time in your studio experimenting and playing and the difficulties that that allows. I think this is just one of those things other people say, but um, I wonder what you think when I say the following, um, that I really appreciate the, the energy, the seriousness, the ideas that are in your work, and the balance of humour. Um, just, it just seems to be in a, a really grown-up way of dealing with humour and using it as an important... Feature. Well, that's a huge compliment, and um, it's really hard to take compliments. <laughs> Thank you. Or bask. <laughs> I just wondered what kind of advice would you give to one of your students who uh, had followed down the path of life drawing and hand-to-eye coordination and accuracy, which is um, very skillful, but then how do you then encourage them to move out of that and into uh, the kind of energy and flair that has mm. just been described. Well, that's the hardest thing for anybody to do who's mastered a sort of skill. And I think it's the same whether it's about life drawing or in other areas. So somebody who's incredibly good at watercolour, what do you say with that? It's always about what you need to say. And how do you teach that? I don't think you can teach it. You can help people explore, and you can show them things, but the need has to be there. Um, and I realized that very early with my contemporaries at Ashton Underline, that some people were brilliant at life drawing, and then they didn't know what to do with it. I thought that was really fascinating. So, you know, if you're a little bit more ham-fisted and not quite so skillful, maybe you have to improvise and find ways around it. I think it's a really good question. Hi, um, I'm particularly enamoured with your, your lino cuts and woodcuts, and I wanted to just hear a bit about what drew you towards that, that form of media. Uh, and also, if you could just say a few words about one of your pieces in the summer exhibition, Diana and Asatun, which I think is absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you for giving me a plug for my print in the summer show. Um, when you start printmaking, you know nothing about it. You know, somebody's gives you the opportunity to do some etching. And most of the way I learned about printmaking in the beginning was that I'd been invited in to do some etchings at a wonderful print studio called the Print Centre. And 
that was a really fantastic thing. We made these ambitious etchings, but I had very little hands-on skill because I was working with the most gifted printmakers, um, one of whom is in this room now, Sarah Lee, who's also written about my printmaking in the book. So because I'd done these rather superb etchings, they attracted a lot of attention, and students at the Royal, Acad Royal College of Art um, requested their teachers that I could go in and uh, talk to them. Uh, little did they know that I would spend all my tutorials saying to them, how did you do this? So I felt that I almost had the privilege of being a student on the course, although I was teaching on it, which was very weird. So the technicians there, um, you know, I'd do my thing in, with the students and then I'd go and talk to the technical staff and we'd get some prints on the go. And somebody suggested Alan Smith at the uh, Royal College that I try woodcut. And at the same time, we had some wonderful uh, Japanese students coming over to the college. And they brought with them that amazing tradition of Japanese woodblock printing. As a student, I'd looked at uh, the German Expressionists, so I knew a little bit about block printing or what it could look like. And then um, the technician told me where to get a, some tools, and he told me where to get the wood and lino. And then I just started in the studio on my own. And the amazing thing about block printing is that you can do it without a press. You know, if you've got in the right paper, you can, um, you know, you can take a print by hand. So you need a roller and I was only working in black and white, it seemed to be incredibly liberating. So after producing these rather high-end and wonderfully resourced etchings, I was able to start kind of down at ground zero and in the most primitive way. And I really, I really loved the um, freedom it gave me. And Diana Anaktian is you know, a direct descendant of that approach. Um, if you warm the lino, I've now got a hot plate, for warming plates, like kitchen plates, that I warm the lino on, and then that means you can cut the most wonderful um, flowing lines, because um, she's very flowing, Diana and Actian. And um, Matisse described lino cutting as cut, lino cuts like butter, which in the south of France, you can just about imagine, of course. In Northern European, it's not like that. So I'd also got a lot of... Um, opportunity to talk to our Japanese students and some of them brought me tools back and then it just went from there and it's my greatest love I think after drawing is block printing. Okay. Well, thank, you. thank you. Thank you Anna. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk